Coming up next on the Passion Struck Podcast. I started to have my brain treated at a physiological level. Dr. Michael Lewis and Dr. Mark Gordon are a couple of the physicians that are on the leading edge of this. And that's how do we help people's brains heal at a physiological level rather than just suppressing people with a bunch of pharmaceutical drugs that essentially just suppress symptoms and over time really aggravate the situation. So I'm kind of on this new path to holistic healing and I've gotten access and it's been life-changing. I'm just kind of beginning this new journey in a lot of ways, but I, for the first time I have hope again in my life. I have hope that I'm not only going to just survive, but thrive again in life. Thrive as a parent and a husband. And it's incredibly encouraging to have the support that I have now and know that there's these options out there that I don't have to be just stuck on a bunch of drugs the rest of my life feeling miserable. Welcome to Passion Struck. Hi, I'm your host, John R. Miles. And on the show, we decipher the secrets, tips, and guidance of the world's most inspiring people and turn their wisdom into practical advice for you and those around you. Our mission is to help you unlock the power of intentionality so that you can become the best version of yourself. If you're new to the show, I offer advice and answer listener questions on Fridays. We have long form interviews the rest of the week with guests ranging from astronauts to authors, CEOs, creators, innovators, scientists, military leaders, visionaries, and athletes. Now, let's go out there and become passion struck. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 141 of passion struck recently ranked as one of the top 50 most inspirational podcasts in the world. Thank you to each and every one of you who comes back weekly to listen and learn how to live better, be better and impact the world. And in case you missed my interview from yesterday, I had on Admiral James Stavridis, the former NATO Supreme Commander from 2009 to 2013. And we discuss his new book, To Risk It All, and did its official launch, where we discuss leaders ranging from Stephen Decatur to Admiral Halsey to Admiral Michelle Howard, and so much more. Such a great episode. Please go check it out if you haven't had a chance to listen to it. And if you missed my solo episode from last Friday, it was on our belief system and how that influences who we are. I also wanted to say thank you for your ratings and reviews. We now have globally over 8,000 of them on iTunes alone. It means so much to us when you give us those ratings. And I know both we and our guests love to hear your comments. And if you love today's episode, yesterday's, or any of the others that you've listened to, please forward them to your friend and family members and share this inspirational podcast. Now, let's talk about today's guest. Keegan Smurf Gill is a former U.S. Navy F-18E strike fighter pilot. He endured the fastest survived ejection in the history of naval aviation. Despite devastating injuries, he returned to flying Super Hornets until the effects of his traumatic brain injuries and diagnosis of delayed onset PTSD ending his military career. He is now on the journey to heal mind, body, and soul. And in our interview, we discuss the 4 by 4 by 48 challenge, which is running four miles every four hours for 48 hours. And it was during that competition that he and I first met. We go into that experience and the benefits that we both got from being around so many veterans who were also doing the event with us. We discuss the events leading up 
to his ejection from his fighter, his harrowing two hours in frigidly cold, shark-infested waters, we go into the elements of his rescue and the extensive recovery that he endured. We go into how he earned his way back to flight status, but realizing there were long-term medical issues caused by the TBIs that would go on to prevent him from further flight operations. What he and the Navy learned from his mishap and how his life is different today. Thank you for choosing Passion Struck and choosing me to be your host and guide on your journey to creating an intentional life. Now, let that journey begin. I am so excited to welcome my friend Keegan Gill the Passion Struck Podcast. How's it going, Keegan? Great, John. Thanks for having me on. It seems like yesterday that uh, you and I were doing the 4x48 at Andrew Marr's property, but man, that was the beginning of March. What were some of your favorite takeaways from that event? Well, that was an incredible event uh, where we met. Uh, I think some of my favorite takeaways were largely the people that I met there, like yourself, just being in a community of people that had been through similar situations and had some similar struggles uh, post-military service uh, was incredibly powerful in itself. So that was a big one for me, definitely. I also left the event with sort of this whole new network of support, not only through the people that I met there, but also through the Warrior Angel Foundation and, and that they're basically treating me like a, a Red Bull athlete or something now with medical care that, that's been pretty refreshing and been getting access to a lot of modalities that one, I didn't even know existed, but have been hugely helpful in improving my health overall. My favorite things I have to say about the experience was I didn't realize that we were going to have native Americans there until just before the event. I didn't realize the significance of them being there until it was probably the last night uh, before we did our final couple of runs. And I was talking to one of the ladies um, who had come in from Miami and she had actually prophesied about this event 10 years before that, which is why she was there. The, the chief who was there saw this event 25 years ago and was taking this as his opportunity on behalf of his nation to declare peace to the U.S. military when they brought out uh, Crazy Horse's peace pipe and then offered it up to Chris Miller, the former Secretary of Defense. I had no idea how meaningful an event we were witnessing there. It was truly history. There was something special in the air, and, and I didn't realize all of that backstory myself uh, while I was at the event, but there was no doubt there was something incredibly powerful going on there. And I felt it in the run. I felt it in the atmosphere of the people being on the Comanche warrior land that we were on. And it was just like everything had aligned for that weekend. And it was something incredibly powerful. It certainly was. So was my having the opportunity to spend four of those 48 miles with you on one of those segments. And I think that was one of my favorite things about the event is that each segment, I, I got to spend it with a completely different veteran, which to me was a great way to, to get to know someone in a relatively short period of time. But while we were there, you told me 
your amazing story. Keegan is a former F-18 Super Hornet pilot. And on one fateful day was doing some dogfighting and maybe you can walk them through the evolutions of what happened. Yeah, absolutely. So it was January 15, 2014. Uh, I, I had been in my squadron long enough to start not feeling like the new guy anymore, starting to get the hang of things. And the day kind of started like uh, most other days, just busy morning of planning and mission planning and doing my ground jobs and all that. And then I was going to go out and I was going to get to fly some air combat maneuvering with my commanding officer, my skipper. And we took off. We did a few uh, air-to-air refueling plugs off one of the aircraft that uh, had an ARS refueling pod that had just come out of maintenance. And so we checked that pod up airborne doing some air-to-air refueling. That all went really smoothly. And we had some extra gas and some extra time. So the skipper and myself were going to go make the best of it. He was in uh, a jet. I was in a jet. And we went off into a working area and we set up for some high aspect BFM, which is one of the most fun things you can do in a fighter jet. And it's probably what a lot of people think uh, is sort of the epitome of what it is to fly a fighter jet. And that is fighting another jet, trying to shoot them down in this case for pretend, but for training uh, within a visual arena. So within a few miles of each other, and it's, it's kind of that old fashioned dog fighting. So we're ripping around Max performing the jet, pulling a lot of G's, trying to engage weapon systems and defensive systems and run a radar and, and all these systems of the jet. And it can be uh, it can be a little overwhelming, but it's incredibly fun. And so we had done four or five sets that day and it kind of went as expected. My skipper was smoking me uh, on every single set, but that's kind of how the Navy trains you as, as you're aware, aware is kind of throw you in over your head and you figure it out. Uh, I had also just received my qualifications the prior week or so with what's called a Jehemix helmet, which is a joint helmet mounted cueing system, which is just a, a big helmet with a, a visor on it that gives you all of your displays. So wherever you turn your head, you can see all the weapons displays and your airspeed and your altitude and everything. Uh, and it gives you a lot of ability, especially when you're fighting a jet, you can kind of look over your shoulder and engage weapon systems. Uh, that's a pretty incredible feature. So I was still getting, kind of getting used to a new piece of gear. And like any new piece of gear, especially one this complex, it takes some practice to get fully used to it and get back into a habit pattern with it. We had set up for our last set. We were at 12,500 feet. We had hit Joker fuel and reset our bingo bugs down to bingo, meaning we were just about out of gas, but we had just enough time for one more round of this dog fighting. Uh, and we set up, we were down to 12,500 feet, a little faster than we normally set up, but no big deal. Uh, at this point, I'm over two nautical miles above the earth. I'm not really thinking about uh, the ground as a big factor in this fight, which I, I should have been retrospectively. But uh, he called the fights on, we pitched in, I went up to full max afterburner and I pitched my jet in towards him. And our jets kind of shot in each other. And as we cross paths, which is called at the merge, I was about 30 degrees nose low and partially inverted. So I was already partially through this turn and kind of distracted trying to shoot my skipper down using that helmet. I didn't fully realize how fast I had gotten uh, in just those few seconds from when we started the fight. And I opted to maneuver the jet nose low. And when I did so, uh, the jet rapidly accelerated 
And when I was about bullseye nose low, so this thing is pointed straight down in this dive from this basically a split S maneuver that I had done. Uh, all of a sudden, a system on the jet, the G limiter, kicked in with what's called the G bucket. And it's the speed uh, in the transonic speed reason, which is right before you break the speed of sound, there's an incredible amount of parasitic drag acting on the aircraft. And so that system, sensing that I was potentially going to overstress the aircraft, reduced the amount of G that I was pulling. So I went from a max performance, really hard pull in the jet, where my head and helmet combined weighed over 160 pounds, that I could feel all that weight acting on my head and my body. And all of a sudden that eased up to about half of the normal the normal G, which is the equivalent of going around a sharp corner in a sports car. And then all of a sudden having the steering wheel kick back halfway and sort of at the apex of that turn, you can go skidding off the road and crash into a tree. But in my case, I'm in the sky and now all of a sudden I'm just diving at the ocean. We will be right back to my interview with Keegan Gill. This year, one of my goals is to try to revive my Spanish for an upcoming trip I have to Puerto Rico. With Babbel, the language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions, not only is learning a new language fun, the whole Babbel process is addictively fun. It's fast. It's easy. Babbel teaches bite-sized language lessons for real-world use. And I use my daily morning walks to digest Babbel's 15-minute lessons which make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. I also enjoy their games. Other language apps use AI for their lesson plans, but Babbel lessons were created by over 100 actual language experts. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Plus, Babbel speech recognition technology helps you improve your pronunciation and accent. Start your new language journey today with Babbel. And right now, save up to 60% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash passionstruck. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash passionstruck for up to 60% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. Now, back to my interview with Keegan Gill. This all, again, happens just a few seconds. So had I thought of it quickly enough, I could have reached down and there's a paddle switch that I could have overridden that system to override the G limiter, but I just had a few seconds to figure out my reaction time was uh, not what it needed to be to uh, enable that feature. So I basically was just stuck in a dive at the ocean thinking that the jet just wasn't turning the way it was supposed to. Maybe there was a malfunction in the flight control system. That's kind of what I thought. I pulled the throttle to idle. I put out the speed brake to try to slow the jet. And at this point I'm at 51 degrees nose low. So a pretty steep dive at about 2000 feet above the ocean, going 604 knots indicated airspeed, which is equivalent of 695 miles per hour or 0.95 indicated Mach, which is 95% the speed of sound. So I'm basically, I am at the sound barrier. And at that point, my only option was to get out of the jet. And two seconds before the jet impacted the water, I pulled the ejection handle. And coming out at that speed was devastating on my body. I mean, if you've ever stuck your arm out of a window on a, in a car going about 70 on the highway, you know that feeling of parasitic drag acting on your body, how it pushes your arm back forcefully. Well, imagine that force at 700 miles per hour that I was at, which is exponentially stronger. So a hundred times stronger than that force you'd feel at 70 miles per hour, essentially. And 
when my body impacted that, I mean, it ripped off my helmet. Uh, I got a traumatic brain injury from my head smashing. I broke my neck. I broke my left scapula, uh, bilateral humerus fractures. So both my upper arms were fractured. My left radius and ulna was fractured. And basically my radius was just shattered to pieces. Uh, both my tib fibs and both my lower legs were just shattered apart. Uh, I lost some chunks of the bone out of my tibia into the ocean forever. Uh, and I had a variety of nerve damage. I had my brachial artery torn open and I was just bashed and beaten. Normal ejections, pretty violent. There's an instantaneous force of about 50 G's when that rocket ignites under your butt to get you out of the cockpit in less than a half a second. People will commonly have spinal injuries. They'll have compression of their neck and their spine. And a lot of guys will permanently lose like an inch off their stature. And that's an normal ejection going less than 200 knots straight and level in a controlled scenario. Well, I was way outside the envelope for uh, an ejection, but I didn't really have a choice. It was either get out if I could and, or, or die for sure. And so that just destroyed my body. My parachute opened just enough to keep me from dying on impact with the water. And this is January in Virgi off the coast of uh, Virginia Beach over the Atlantic Ocean. And the water temperature that day at the nearby buoy was 37 degrees Fahrenheit. So just about ice water. And I was wearing a dry suit because we do that in case we do have to go into the ocean on an ejection like this. But I had ejected so fast that my dry suit had shred open. And I mean, the gear on my vest had even ripped off. That force that I hit was like hitting an explosion, uh, a powerful explosion with my body. So now I'm just tattered, I'm broken up. Uh, I landed in the cold ocean water and ocean water at that temperature, it feels like needles on your skin. And when your head gets in it, it if you've ever had a brain freeze from drinking a Slurpee too fast, that's the sensation that you get on your head uh, but I didn't really have any ability to swim now with my arms and legs destroyed. Fortunately, my LPU, which is a little life preserver unit around your neck, uh, that automatically inflated. And that helped to give my head some buoyancy and occasionally get a breath of air. My parachute, which had just saved my life, sunk under the current of the ocean. The sea state that day was uh, not the most rough it could be out in the ocean, but it was still the open ocean. Uh, in January and, and things were moving around. There's big waves and, and smashing me around. And as that current caught hold of my parachute, it sunk under and started to drag me under the water. And if you've ever had that sensation where you need a breath of air and you can't get one, well, that, that was just happening over and over and over again. And I spent the next hour and a half plus just basically being drowned alive. There's a system on our uh, parachute risers that connect into our harness that are supposed to disconnect the parachute automatically. For whatever reason, one of those SeaWars units fired but didn't disconnect, and then the other one didn't even fire. So that, that automatic system uh, didn't function, and I had no ability to reach up and disconnect the parachute. Uh, and so now I, I'm just getting drowned alive. Fortunately, my skipper saw where I went down. He assumed an on-scene commander. He dropped a mark on my position. He got down as low as he could to keep an eye on me. He coordinated with air traffic control. And so there were multiple other aircraft coming in, air traffic control knew, and he spotted a fishing vessel that was uh, about a mile from our, my position. And he tried getting a hold of them on maritime guard. They weren't initially answering. So he got really fast and really low and he thumped the bow of their boat, which got their attention really quickly. And they spun up 
uh, maritime guard and he coordinated to get them over to my position. Uh, once they got there, he was out of gas. He had to bingo back to the shore uh, to NAS Oceana and some other aircraft had arrived overhead to keep an eye on me uh, through their FLIRS, which is like a fancy camera on the F-18. And at this point, the Coast Guard had been notified and there were two Navy helicopters coming to my position. The, the fishing vessel, at least they, they tried to throw a rope out and help me, but the rope was just getting tangled in the paracord and around my neck and was making matters worse. And, but luckily they gave me a, a good visual position of where I was at because my helmet had ripped off in the ejection, which has like a white reflective cover on it. And for whatever reason, the beacon did not function the way it was supposed to, that was on me. But that boat was able to give me, give a visual reference of where I was to everybody that was inbound. And eventually uh, after roughly an hour and a half to two hours, depending on which report I read on it, uh, these other helicopters showed up. One was from HSC-9 off, operating off an aircraft carrier that was out in the Atlantic at that point nearby. And the other one was from HSC-28. And they were actually uh, out to do a, a weapons exercise uh, with some uh, of the SEAL team folks. And they diverted their mission and came my way. And they both got there about the same time. And HSC-9 thought the rescue swimmer uh, and their crew had thought I was on the fishing boat itself. And so there was some sort of miscommunication that led them to leave that. And in the meantime, HSC-28 arrived in their H-60 Seahawk uh, Navy helicopter. And they saw that the other rescue swimmer and the other helicopter were confused in my position. And they were looking around for where I was at and they spotted me. I think it was the pilot of the HSC-28 helicopter initially spotted me. And the rescue swimmer Cheech is like, get me in there. Uh, the week prior, the same rescue crew and Cheech, the rescue swimmer, had been on a mission to save uh, a Navy H-53 Sea Dragon helicopter that had gone down full of Marines in roughly the same area. And because of the sea state and the frigid cold water, uh, unfortunately, everybody in that helicopter crash, I think, perished that Cheech had tried to rescue. And so he was coming off a really bad prior week. He was at this point where he should have probably had some leave to go collect his thoughts. And, but he was there that day in this helicopter, ready to jump back in the freezing cold Atlantic ocean to save me. And he took some lessons learned from that previous week's helicopter crash and applied them to my situation. He got in, uh, they got the helicopter as close as they could to my position. He jumped in and once he got in that cold ocean water, he swam up to me and he hooked into my D-ring, which is uh, like a titanium carabiner on my uh, harness. He hooked into me and he said, as he hooked into me, that parachute just started dragging both of us underwater. And despite him being an, an elite rescue swimmer, swimming as hard as he could, it was still pulling both of us under the water. And he said he went underwater. He could just, he's used to training in the pool for a SAR scenario and going underwater. You can see the bottom of the pool. He said when he dunked his head under this water, all he just saw was just the blue abyss beneath us with that parachute that was yanking us. So he, he got underwater. He used his, uh, his knife to cut all those paracords loose. And he threw a, a strap on me and he got me back into the helicopter as quickly as he could. Chief uh, said on the ride up, we were just spinning around like crazy and swaying all over the place. And they got me from, that, uh, from the water up into the helicopter and onto a backboard to stabilize me. And Cheech had said that five, 
that ride to the, to the hospital from, it might've been 30, 45 minutes, but he said it seemed like five hours because he was just trying to keep me alive and conscious. And one moment I'd be yelling and screaming and the next moment I'd be out blacked out and he would rub my sternum with the, the rest of the, the crew in the back of the helicopter. And I would come to, and, and that kind of repeated over and over of the whole ride of just me kind of being on the verge of, of dying the whole way. Uh, they got me to a level one trauma center at Norfolk, uh, Norfolk, Virginia's level one trauma center hospital. And, uh, they got me out of the helicopter and luckily the dream team was on that day. Uh, some of the best surgeons in the world happened to be all on the same shift and they started to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Uh, they, they treated me for hypothermia. My core body temperature, once I got to the hospital was at 87 degrees Fahrenheit. So I should have been dead from the hypothermia. Uh, I should have bled to death. But fortunately, because my dry suit had shredded open and filled with ocean water, while that being filled with icy cold seawater almost killed me as well, that hypothermia actually kept me from bleeding to death from my torn open brachial artery in my right arm and my, my open fractures in my legs. And they said, had my dry suit functioned the way it was supposed to and not ripped open, I would have bled to death way before the helicopters ever showed up. Uh, so they got me in another just wild miracle of this whole story. And, and they started treating me for the hypothermia. My lungs were full of water. So they were treating me for that. I was uh, experiencing kidney, kidney failure from uh, rhabdomyolysis. Uh, basically all that muscle damage and, and stress on my body was overwhelming my kidneys. Uh, so they were treating me for all that. They induced a coma. And then I spent the next week undergoing over a dozen surgeries. They reconstructed my skeleton with uh, titanium rods, uh, titanium screws, steel plates. If you see my x-ray now, I look like an undersized Wolverine, basically. <laughs> uh, but they got me back together. Then I spent the next week where they didn't know if I was going to live and it didn't look good. And, and the doctors kept coming into my friends and family and squadron mates that were in the waiting room and saying, it doesn't look like he's going to live. And if he does, he's going to be a vegetable. He's not going to fly. He's not going to walk. And it didn't look good at all. And they had taken me out of that induced coma, but now I was just in a, a coma and then not coming out of it, not responsive whatsoever. And that kind of kept going on and they kept saying I wasn't going to make it. And one of the, one of the junior officers in my squadron, another pilot, they were all in there just, you know, with the weight of the situation kind of weighing over everybody. And, uh, Basil is his call sign. He, he said, he's a scrappy motherfucker. He'll be all right. <laughs> and so they took, they took that scrappy and, and they shortened it down to Smurf. So that kind of became my call sign out of it. But, uh, a week later and I came to. And I didn't know how I got there. I was completely disoriented. I thought I was fine. I, I remember the first sign that I, something was wrong was I was trying to get out of the bed. And I thought that the, the little wool blanket that was over me was made out of lead or something. I could not get it off of me. And then I, I started to realize that I was paralyzed. Uh, and anyways, the, the doctors eventually came in after I had stabilized in the ICU and they told me I was never going to walk again. My flying career was over and something inside me said, I'm going to prove you all wrong. And every day I started working to just, you know, try to wiggle a little bit, try to scoot a little bit, get a little bit of function. 
And week after week and, and motivated by trying to get out of the terrible hospital food that I was eating, uh, I started to get a little bit better. And it took three months. Uh, I was moved down to the Richmond, Virginia VA, a polytrauma center they had at that hospital. And then I spent every day, all day doing therapy. I was doing speech therapy, vision therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, kinesiotherapy, and, and everything you can think of to try to get better. And little by little, uh, things just started turning on. And after three months, I could walk on a walker. I had limited use of my arms. And then I continued my therapy outside, uh, doing outpatient therapy to Naval Hospital Portsmouth. And my buddy, Tom Fisty, he took me into his house and basically adopted me. And him and Vinny, uh, another friend, a pilot, they, they started taking care of me. And I had a ton of support from the strike fighter community of people wanting me to get back at it and, and get better. It didn't look good. I could barely walk up and down the stairs. I, I was still on a walker. And fortunately, one of the department heads in my squadron, Uncle Smugs, his wife is affectionately known as Aunt Smugs. She was a physical therapist and she started working with me one-on-one -on -one kind of outside the clinic. And she showed up day one and she had a Nalgene bottle and on the side of it said, patient's tears. So I kind of got the impression of what this was going to be like with her. And she showed up first day and she, I was walking with a cane at this point. She grabbed that cane and she said, I don't want to see you walking with that. She snatched it away. And then she proceeded to just kicked the hell out of me every day that I went in to see her. And I loved it. I was really big into fitness before this. I think that's part of the reason I lived is really big into CrossFit and, and running. And I was fit and short and stocky. Um, and I think that saved my life initially. And I think it also helped make the recovery a little easier between Aunt Smugs working with me, my friend, uh, Aaron, uh, call sign Spicoli. He started taking me out surfing, uh, along with some other friends uh, Rich and Neil and, and a bunch of guys in Virginia beach. And I remember the first time going out, I couldn't even, I could hardly get my wetsuit on my upper body was so weak, but I still went out. We, we went out one day out in the outer banks and it was probably like 10 to 12 feet of heavy waves. And I didn't even use a surfboard that day, but I just swam out and I got smashed by this huge wave and held under for a long time. And as I came to the surface, I got smashed under again, right before I got a breath. And I made it through and I popped up and I had a big smile on my face. I was thinking maybe that would trigger all the terrible stuff that just happened to me. But for whatever reason, I just was smiling about it. And little by little, I was able to start surfing. Uh, my friend Spicoli started taking me mountain biking and started doing that. I could barely use the front brake. I could barely ride the bike, but I was out there doing downhill mountain biking with him. And I kept falling off and getting smashed up. But uh, these were all the things I was doing to get better. I was going to yoga. I was, I was eating really well. I was eating a lot of plant-based foods and, and, and nutritionist stuff. Uh, and little by little, I got better. And after two years, I, I was maxing out the Navy's PRT again. I was feeling great. And mentally I felt good. I'd undergone a lot of neurological assessments and all the tests known to man, I had the tallest stack of medical waivers possible uh, for NAMI so I could get my flight physical back. And uh, eventually the, the command I was at pushed for me to go back and I, I went back to flying Super Hornets. Uh, and I went back through the F-18 training 
And I was back at the fleet with VFA 136 uh, out in NAS Lemoore, and I thought everything was good again. I started to experience some stuff that I mostly brushed off when it was happening, just assuming, well, I'm still getting better. I'm still healing. Went from like little maybe mood and personality things and memory lapses and cognitive impairments. One day kind of manifested pretty poorly while I was doing a weapon shoot at Tyndall Air Force Base. Uh, we were down there on a detachment uh, with our squadron, and I had done a a, a live fire exercise that day using a, an aim nine mic sidewinder missile that I shot at a drone. And after that, I went and got to fight a F-22 Raptor from the Hawaiian Raptors uh, in what's called DACT, which is dissimilar air combat training. So we were basically doing dogfighting. It was me and this other F-22 Raptor and getting to see that thing move up close. And it's like a spaceship, the way that thing can move. I remembered when I came back, all the fighting of the Raptor and that part of the flight, but I was watching my tapes in the debrief and I realized I didn't remember hardly anything from the missile shoot. So I had this massive memory lapse, which was pretty concerning. Uh, I went back to the hotel that night and I got some sleep and thinking maybe I just need to get some rest. The next day I was on duty and, and kind of pushed through the day and I wasn't feeling great, but I made it through the duty day. And that night I went back to my hotel room and the floor was pulsing under me. I had vertigo. Uh, I was trying to do the math to set my alarm clock on my phone and I could not do the math, uh, which I should have been able to do. And so that's the point I really realized something was bad. And there had been a common problem in the super hornets of a decompression sickness issue, uh, caused by the environmental control system. So there had been some faulty, uh, mechanical functioning on some of the environmental control systems, which control the pressurization of the cabin. And what was happening to some pilots uh, and aircrew was when the, the cabin would rap rapidly fluctuate or lose pressure, it can cause decompression sickness, which people might be familiar with if you're a scuba diver. Uh, if you come back up uh, too quickly to the surface, it can cause nitrogen in your blood to come out of solution and create these little tiny bubbles. And if those get in your joints, you get the bends and it's uncomfortable and painful. But if those little bubbles form in your brain, that's what the Navy calls type two decompression sickness. And that can cause all sorts of mental dysfunction. Uh, like I thought I was experiencing potentially caused by it. Uh, it can even kill you. It can basically give you an aneurysm if those bubbles form uh, in the right spot or the wrong spot. Uh, so I thought maybe I had decompression sickness. I contacted the squadron safety officer. They rushed me to, uh, I think it was Mayport Dive Base, nearby Tyndall Air Force Base there. It's a Navy dive base and they had a hyperbaric chamber. So they put me in the pressure chamber and they squeezed me over the course of several hours. I was breathing pure oxygen. I started to feel better as I came out of it. And I kind of went from the sort of zombie mode that I was in and kind of got a little sense of humor back and started to feel okay. And the doc there was like, Hey, maybe you had decompression sickness. We don't know, but looking at your medical history, there might be more going on here. So they advised that when I got back to Lemoore that I went and saw the, the docs, which as a pilot, you never want to hear that because that could be the end of your career. But I didn't want to injure anybody. I didn't want to crash a jet again. I didn't want to be the cause of something terrible happening because I ignored my medical issues getting worse. So I reluctantly went in when I got back uh, from detachment and spoke with the medical staff and they started treating me. Uh, initially, uh, they didn't really know what to make of it. I had an incredibly complex 
background and medical history. And if, if you saw my medical records, it's like a stack of Encyclopedia Britannica, this massive pile of medical records. So the doc started trying to dig through all that and what time they had and, and, and try to figure out what to do. They sent me down to Stanford University and I underwent a couple more surgeries to address some of the pain issues I was having uh, from some nerve damage in my left leg. Uh, and before long, they had a diagnosis of delayed onset PTSD and started using a variety of different medications to treat that. And at this point, I started going into psychoses and things got really bizarre. I mean, kind of reality and my imagination started to blend together and, and I, I kind of went through a pretty rough time. Luckily, my wife, she was taking care of me like a baby. Uh, we had just had a, a newborn son. He was not even a few months old. And now my wife is trying to manage him and take care of me, who is a baby, essentially mental function wise, but I could use a phone. I can drive a car. I can get access to our bank accounts. It's incredibly difficult for her. And, and the medical staff on base really wanted to hospitalize me uh, for mental health. But fortunately, she kept me out of that facility. And as time went on, things weren't getting better. Uh, there was a point I was contemplating suicide. Um, and really, the only thing that kept me from taking the pistol out of my end table uh, by our bed was the fact that my wife and my son were sleeping next to me. And I didn't want to wake them up. And luckily, that was just a little bit of hope that I needed to get through that. And eventually, I was put through a medical board. And uh, that's a process I wouldn't wish on anybody. And fortunately, made it through after having to go to appeals and, and fight through that whole system uh, that is just riddled with cracks for people to fall through, it seemed. And luckily, I came out of the other side. I was medically retired. From the, from the Navy. And I moved back to Northern Michigan with my family. And then I spent several years struggling with these psychoses in and out of various degrees of mental function. Some days I would feel okay. Other days things got way worse. And, and I actually went into the worst psychosis I had been in to the point where uh, my wife had to rush me to an emergency room. She found me. I had shaved off most of my hair in chunks. I had shaved off my beard. I shaved off both my eyebrows for some reason. Uh, I was completely naked other than I had a garbage bag around my shoulders like a cape. And I was about to go out into the northern Michigan February snowy weather dressed like that to fight crime. And my wife was like, okay, this is really bad. And she got me to the ER. And then I spent the next, uh, next month living in a VA inpatient facility which was another exposure, some really poor treatment of veterans that I saw and experienced myself that was pretty disheartening. And fortunately, I got out of there with the advocacy of my family and my wife and my parents. They all tried to get me out as best they could. My, my mom is a physician. My dad's in healthcare. My wife is a, a trauma nurse. She worked in the ER for, for years. And so they had their combined medical experience to get me out of there despite the hospital not really wanting to let me go. Um, and had I not had them advocating for me, I mean, I would have been stuck in that place for who knows how long undergoing a lot of treatment that I don't think anybody deserves. Um, you're kind of forced on drugs. And, and when you don't want to take some of the drugs because they make you feel worse, 
Um, they'll hold you down and they'll eject you with Haldol, which feels like fire ants are trying to eat their way out from inside your skin. And you're incredibly restless. Like you cannot, if you've ever had like a restless arm or a restless leg, it makes you feel like that all over. And all you want to do is run and scream and get out of your own body. And that's, that's the kind of medicine they're giving you to try to help you heal. Uh, waking you up every 15 minutes with a flashlight in your face, feeding you just abysmal food. And so all these basic staples of what you really need to heal your brain and your body when you're at the lowest point in your life, you're just not getting there. You're not getting sleep. It's noisy. There's people yelling and moaning in the hallways and there's other people in your room. There's people waking you up with a flashlight when you finally do fall asleep. Uh, and it's just, it's not a place to heal. Unfortunately, I got out of there and I spent the next several months regaining a little more function. And I really struggled for years in and out of these psychosis states, getting angry. And the answer was always just more drugs, more pharmaceutical drugs. And the more I took, the worst I felt. And I had become depressed and angry and short-tempered. And fortunately, I discovered the world of psychedelics. And I did a guided psilocybin uh, retreat that I had found locally. And it kind of reset my brain and, and it got me out of some of these negative behavior patterns that I had been entrenched in and these negative moods and, and everything that I had really just become. And it put me on a new path to getting off the pharmaceutical drugs that I was on. I got off all of that kind of on my own and because every time I went in to see the psychiatry people, they said I had to be on these things and that was the only way forward. And that, uh, that was my, my new normal in my life and to get used to it. And that's the best they could do. I didn't accept that answer kind of the way I didn't accept the doctor's answers when they said I would never fly again or walk again. And I kind of set off to prove them wrong again and, and to do better for myself and for my family. A lot of healthy eating, a lot of physical activity, a lot of the basic things that should be the foundation of everybody's health. I really pursued. And then I, I discovered vet solutions and I sent them an email because I had heard about their psychedelic retreat. And they're the ones that put me in contact with Warrior Angel Foundation. And I put together a fundraiser page to, to, for that event. And I ended up getting invited down by Adam and Andrew. Uh, and then I had that incredible experience there. Not only the, the spiritual experience that that was and the community of people I met, but uh, and then left with just this um, tremendous amount of support. Uh, and all these access to modalities that I didn't even know existed. Uh, some of the nutraceuticals that, that uh, they put me on and they started checking my blood, uh, my lab work with really great detail, checking all my hormone levels and started giving me treatment for anything that was out of balance in regards to those things. And I started to have my brain treated at a physiological level. Dr. Michael Lewis and Dr. Mark Gordon are a couple of the physicians that are on the leading edge of this. How do we help people's brains heal uh, at a physiological level rather than just suppressing people with a bunch of pharmaceutical drugs that essentially just suppress symptoms and over time really aggravate the situation? I'm kind of on this new path to holistic healing and I've gotten access uh, and, and it's been life-changing. And here I am, I'm just kind of beginning this new journey in a lot of ways, but I, for the first time, I have hope again in my life. I have hope that I'm not only going to just survive, but thrive again in life. And 
thrive as a, as a parent and a husband. And, and I don't know what my future is at this point. I've just kind of been waking up from the fog, but it's incredibly encouraging to have the support that I have now and know that there's these options out there that I don't have to be just stuck on a bunch of drugs the rest of my life feeling miserable. I don't even know where to start, Keegan. I mean, that is just <laughs> one of the most remarkable stories. And when you look at all the events that transpired, it's a complete miracle that you're even alive today. Um, Definitely. But one of the things I know, and you alluded to it, is that the force of ejection is extremely violent. It's violent enough to compress the spine. Did you end up losing any height after the ejection? And if so, has any of that been permanent? So fortunately, I had a wrestler neck. I was a wrestler in high school. I had been very active with CrossFit and Olympic lifting. And I was already a short guy. I was 5'7", and I weighed about 180 pounds. So I was pretty stocky build. And, and I think that prevented me from you know, sustaining worse neck injury than I did. I did lose a little bit of height. I'm, I'm maybe a quarter to a half inch shorter than I was before. I did lose a little bit of height, which was a bummer because I was already short. <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling very well myself. <laughs> so what was your biggest fear about ejecting before the mishap? And did that change after the mishap? I didn't really fear ejection. I always had it in the back of my mind as a possibility. And there was actually one of the physiology courses that I went through. There was a, I think it was just Photoshopped, but there was a picture of a guy and he was in an ejection seat. And there was a, there was a, basically a vape, the vapors were coming off from like, he was breaking the speed of sound in this ejection seat. And I think it was just a, you know, the Navy had put it, they had Photoshopped this picture, but I had seen that and I thought, man, that would be an incredible thing to survive. And this is before my ejection, not that I wanted to be that person, but I also had in the back of my mind, if I ever have to do that, what can I do now to prepare for the stress that that would place on my body? And that also helped to fuel my workouts and my efforts. I wanted to be in the condition that I could survive if I ever had to do that. It was way worse than I could have ever imagined what you'd have to actually go through in an ejection. And I was at the extreme limits of uh, what's even survivable. That moment when you pulled the handles and you knew you were going to eject, what was your biggest fear at that point when you were leaving the aircraft? I had the ground rush of the ocean coming up at me. So it just, I was only about 2000 feet. I was literally two seconds before impacting the water. So my biggest fear was if I don't pull that handle, I'm going to die for sure right now. So my fear was dying on impact of the ocean. So pulling the handle, that seemed like the way out. Uh, so I wasn't <laughs> afraid to pull the handle. I was afraid of crashing into the ocean. <laughs> Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things and Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. 
No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities from scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates. It's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to Indeed.com slash passionstruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now, back to passionstruck. Well, I have no idea how you survived in the water for that long. Um, I was stationed up at Newport and we had to do damage control simulations. I can't even imagine being in those conditions as long as as you were. Um, Did you fear sharks or anything else when you were in the water? (laughs) So kind of a funny story about the shark. Uh, My buddy, Tommy, call sign Fisty, was on SDO the morning of my ejection. Uh, which basically means he sits at the desk and he coordinates the flight schedule and he runs the radio and he's there in case there is a mishap, he can help coordinate. And something funny that Tommy did is he, on the whiteboard behind the SDO desk, he had put up a a shark tracker and he had an app on his phone called shark tracker, uh, which is through O search, which is like ocean and research stuck together in one word. And what they do is they go out and they tag these sharks with uh, GPS tags and they keep track of them. They'll take them out of the water. They'll measure them. They'll weigh them. They'll name them. And they put a tag on them. And, and that way they can track their activity for uh, research purposes. And so there was that day, uh, Mary Lee, who's a 16 foot. She was, I think at the point, this point, she was about 3,500 pounds. And she was right underneath my working area where I was going to go out. And so Tommy had put Mary Lee on the board. And he's like, Hey, whatever you do today, don't eject. Mary Lee is right underneath your working area. And at the time we were just laughing about it. But once I was in the water, it was kind of like, Oh man, there's actually a massive great white shark right underneath me right now that could eat me in any second. (laughs) So looking back, what would you change about the day that this occurred? And looking back, what wouldn't you change? So I think, I mean, the biggest thing is I made a mistake. I, I, I didn't realize how quickly I was going to eat up that altitude at that airspeed. And I didn't, I mean, I had read the NATOPS in and out and I understood what the G limiter was and the G bucket, but uh, I wish that I had a better understanding of it going into it. It was really my own fault. I mean, I knew these things. I just didn't put them together in that split second decision that I made. So if I could change anything, it would be the fact that I just made that mistake. The G bucket, while it does protect the aircraft from overstress, I'm not the first nor the last guy to have either nearly died or died because of that system. Uh, and, and a lot of times it's been people with a hell of a lot of more experience than I had. So I hope that can be changed. Uh, I know that funding is a massive issue for anything in the Navy. There's a lot of things that could use improving our survival gear. Uh, our, you know, systems like that. 
but it's expensive. What do you think, looking back, are some of the lessons that you learned from the events leading up to the mishap? And how did those lessons change your mindset when you went back into the cockpit? I didn't really have a whole lot that I I felt I needed to change. And unfortunately, what happened to me was only something I could have got from experience, I guess you could say. I didn't have this this feeling that I was invincible and thinking, well, that's it's unlikely that's, that's going to happen to me. Despite the fact that I would train for it just in case, I, I really, in the back of my mind, I think I thought that that would never happen to me. But then after it happened, now I, I, I came out of it with this, that really does happen. I kind of came back with a, a deeper appreciation for what that really meant. I think I used that to just be that much more focused on the importance of how I needed to approach flying. How much did you think that being recently trained on that new helmet system had any impact on the event? And what would be your recommendations as pilots are learning a new system that the Navy could do differently? I think it did have an impact because I was distracted a little bit using that new system, but at the same time, you have to use those systems in order to get used to them. And that's the only way I think in an ideal world, if when you entered the F-18 community, if after you did maybe an initial transition period into the F-18, you started using the Jehemics on every flight, um, that could be largely beneficial. I always thought something that could be really beneficial. We have all the simulator training in the Super Hornet. If you could have a simulator where at some point in that sim uh, lesson, you got put into the situation I was in and you could basically be put in this nose low dive at the ocean and then practice actually hitting that paddle switch to override the system. Uh, I think, I think that could be largely beneficial because you can read about things all you want. You can have, I mean, I could have played strike fighter F-18 trivia all day. And if they had asked me at zero G or one G sitting at a desk, how does the G bucket work? How does the G limiter work? And, And if, if you're put in this situation, what would you do? And I could have told you all the right answers, but to actually have that knowledge in the split second and put it into action is, is a whole different level. And I think if, if people had the chance to be in the simulator and practice that, um, whereas we are largely told, like, don't press the paddle switch. It's just going to cause an overstress of the jet. There had been a guy down in Key West that had accidentally hit it on one of the flights and he got in trouble for it because he shouldn't have hit it, stressed the jet. So again, it's just training for those events and actually doing the things rather than just talking about them or filling out tests is way more valuable uh, than, than just focusing on knowledge. Uh, so I think that's, that was a big recommendation that I had was let's do this in the simulator. Let's actually have people almost hitting the ground and then hit that paddle switch to know to override it. But as far as I know, that hasn't gone into the syllabus yet, despite recommendations. I know after this, you had to go through a whole mishap board along the process where they looked at the whole incident. What lessons do you think the strike fighter community learned from the events that were leading up to the mishap? And have they changed anything afterwards? It sounds like in a couple areas they have and in a couple areas they haven't. I think a big lesson was they, I, 
I actually spoke with some of the new classes coming into the F-18 and they, they put together uh, some discussion about what I had done and, and people were able to learn from my mistake and see that early on in flight training and say, okay, here's a guy, he may have started up at two miles in the sky, but look what happens when he's going this fast. And so they kind of painted that out so people could see it and be like, okay. Uh, and I think people were able to learn from that lesson for sure. And I'm glad that that was shared. Uh, and that's, that's a big part of naval aviation is, is when, when people do make mistakes and sometimes pay for it with their lives, there are a lot of lessons that are taken from them and shared and, and put into procedures and put into things so that, that, that injury or death or loss of aircraft doesn't just have to be, uh, you know, go without helping people too. And, and they say the NATOPS is written in blood. And, and that's the, the NATOPS is basically the, the operator manual for the F-18. And so all the procedures and everything in there are, are based off of a lot of times people that had made mistakes. So I was fortunate that my mistake could be learned from in a lot of ways. Okay. And I thought we could spend some time, you know, talking about the aftermath of this um, and sure you know, because I think this could be valuable to, you know, whether you face any type of trauma, um, your mind does some very interesting things, uh, such as the memory loss she talked about, such as cognitive deficiencies, such as people having vertigo or um, hypovestibular dysfunctions, et cetera. As you look back upon this and you're now eight years out from it, was their medical intervention that you wish you would have gotten four or five years ago? Why did it take you so long to get it? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I had an incredibly complex situation. Like I said, my medical records are taller than I am if you stack them all together. And so the docs who are already, you know, overworked and underpaid and, and they're, they're struggling just to get to see you and get, get to spend 10 minutes with you. They, they had to make decisions uh, based on what, what information they had. And, and hindsight's twenty twenty. so this isn't a knock against the docs that I had. I'm, I'm here because of those docs and, and the medical professionals I've worked with. But looking at it, hindsight twenty twenty. I mean, the biggest thing was I was displaying all these symptoms that were, and I think 100% certainly caused by my brain injury. Uh, I mean, your brain is essentially the consistency of soft butter. And so what do you think is going to happen to that when you shoot off a rocket underneath your butt at 50 G's and then smash into the sound barrier? It's going to, it's going to smash that butter around inside a hard skull and, and cause some brain injury. Um, but largely the brain injury piece of what I had in my medical records was sort of overlooked and they focused on some of the symptoms and the symptoms were TBI. I mean, they were the fact that I was having vertigo and confusion and I was having uh, some mood dysfunction and in, in, in and out of things. Uh, a lot of this stuff was brain injury, but it got labeled as delayed onset PTSD. And, and maybe, there's some, maybe there's some ties between the two of them, but I've heard some of the more, uh, some of the more recent physicians I've spoken with are like, I don't even... I don't even think PTS is, is a real thing. I think that's some symptoms that are often related to TBI or neuroinflammation. And, and so 
I think if early on, if it had been identified that a lot of the symptoms I were, I was having were actually due to my brain injury. And I was treated at a physiological level for my brain injury. Like I am now, I think there's an extremely high chance that I would have gone back to flying super hornets and I would have been better than I had ever been with all the experience that I had gone through. And unfortunately it got, it got labeled as this PTSD, which, you know, maybe there's a component of that, but rather than treating it at a physiological level, it was treated through uh, suppression through the use of psych, uh, psychiatric medications. And the more of those psychiatric medications I was put on, the worse my psychoses got, the worse my mental function got to the point where, you know, one point I wanted, several points I wanted to kill myself. I went into these psychosis to the point where I had to be hospitalized. And every single time I said, I think the medication's making it worse. It, the answer was always, that's just because you're not taking enough of it. Here's some to take during the day. Here's some more. And at a certain point, I was all the way up on 450 milligrams of Seroquel or Quetiapine, which is a, an antipsychotic medication. And that's also at the exact same week that I went into that extremely intense psychosis immediately after starting that medication at 450 milligrams a day. And so there's all these things I can see with hindsight that we're pointing to the problem, which was the fact that I was just getting these meds that were making things worse in so many ways. And I know that a lot of society has been conditioned to think, well, oh, here's a, here's a person struggling with psych issues that doesn't want to take their medications. That's like the classic, the classic line of a, you know, plot of a TV show or something about this and, and how, you know, what does the psych person know or the psych patient know? And sadly, that's just, there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, the, a lot of truth to the fact that the medications are making it worse. And, and now that I've had those medications removed and I've been treated at a physiological level for my brain injury, a big, a big part of brain injury is it, it can disrupt your hormone production. So as you, as you're aware, it, it can cause it. So you don't produce the hormones that you should at the levels you're supposed to. And anybody whose hormones are out of balance, they're going to have issues with their mood and behavior and, and memory and all these cognitive impairments, impairments. So when you get a blood draw that actually goes into depth and looks at all of these different factors and then addresses them and gives you tools to improve your hormone levels and all of your vitamin levels and, and all, your, all your factors of your blood work, I've seen incredible improvement just from that approach. And so are a lot of other people, like the people we met at this Warrior Angel Foundation. I know I, I'm talking to you. It sounds like you've had a lot of benefit uh, from from these approaches. And and I wish that was the approach when I went into the doctor after that debt where I, I ended up never flying again for the Navy. And I wish the approach was let's treat your brain at the physiological level and maybe do some of these psychedelic retreats as well. And, and I think if people that have been through a lot of trauma in the military and just the chronic stress of it, combat stress, the physical trauma of being blown up or beat up or everything that military members go through. Uh, when you start to treat the brain so that it can heal, which it can, uh, it's made of cells, just like all the other parts of your body. Um, sadly, there seems to be this disconnect uh, in a lot of physicians' minds and that the, the brain is the separate thing that doesn't work at all like the rest of your body. 
and it can't heal like the rest of your body. It can't heal like a bone, but maybe it's more complicated, but in the end of the day, it's still made out of cells. And those cells can heal. And when you reduce the inflammation, when you reduce that neuroinflammation and you feed it the fuel that it needs to rebuild, which is largely fats, like found in omega-3 fatty acids and fish oil, uh, when you do that, you reduce the inflammation and you give it the fuel and the right conditions, the brain can heal itself. And, and that's fortunately the process I'm in now is actually letting my brain heal instead of just suppressing those symptoms with psych meds that in the long term are not the solution at all and actually aggravate it. Uh, I feel very fortunate to be actually addressing the, the real underlying issue. Yeah, I, I actually um, have very similar experiences to you, although the onset of our injuries are quite different. But um, I also experienced uh, long-term post-concussion syndrome uh, that the medical community wanted to say was a mental health issue up until the point where I went to the head of um, traumatic brain injury at um, the local VA facility here in St. Pete. And I remember my first discussion with her. She said, I have no clue why you're here because concussions only get better with time. And I said, well, upon all the reading I've done and the experts I've talked to, about 5 million people suffer from long-term concussion-based symptoms that never go away. So you should know that. Um, she refused to treat me. And so I ended up uh, going to the polytrauma center in Tampa and talking to their doctors there. And after three conversations, they said, you have 99% of the same symptoms that we treat here on an everyday basis. And our approach is completely different. Around that same time uh, was when I met uh, um, Andrew, because I had heard the Joe Rogan episode that he did with uh, Dr. Gordon. And um, for me, I originally just went into it because everything else that I've been treated for isn't working. And the psychedelic medicines, like you said, only make it worse because what I found is they're not treating the underlying issues. For me, I had vestibular hypofunction. I had vertigo issues. I had constant migraines. I had short-term memory issues, cognitive issues, um, and they want to pass them off as something that's a side effect of depression or something else, which yeah. I, I'm telling you, you've probably experienced this too. When you know something's wrong with you and people kept keep telling you there's nothing wrong with you, you are going to get depressed because, oh yeah. Um, but I, I, like you, am treated by Dr. Lewis. Um, I actually had him on the podcast, and I think that's one of the great things I found about doing this podcast is I was able to bring him on, uh, Dr. Jay Lombard, who is one of the foremost experts in neurology uh, around. He is now actually reversing ALS, and he's now looking at uh, other neurological disorders and TBIs, but he is also looking at brain inflammation, but also the fact that proteins get stuck and for whatever reason, don't go down the spinal cord and get flushed out. And when that happens, plaque starts building up. And over time that can cause dementia and other things. And then 
Uh, just before your episode, I had on Dr. Scott Shearer, who's affiliated with Warrior Angels, and he specializes in HBOT treatment, which you, you yourself have been through uh, for both traumatic brain injury and, and other uh, things that people are going through. So I think that there is a lot that people can learn from this. My biggest takeaway to anyone in the audience who's listening to this is if you are suffering from any of those things, reach out to people like Keegan and I, or the Where Are Angels Foundation, or vets like you brought up, um, because there are many alternative holistic approaches that are not only impacting the two of us. I mean, there are thousands of people, veterans, first responders who are now going through these treatments, including Joe Rogan himself, who are seeing dramatic improvements to their quality of life. It's really life-changing. Uh, and it's wild that this isn't just the foundational medicine in our country. Uh, it's sad that these are not the default. Instead, the default is take a pill and hope for the best. <laughs> I actually not only brought up what these other doctors were doing, I ended up sending doctors at the VA probably 20 reports that I had found where all these things are going through clinical trials or they're being used, especially the hormone replacement treatment, because you would think that would be a no-brainer. Right. And they said, you know, unfortunately, in the VA medical system, it just hasn't been yet approved to be a protocol. So we are forbidden to, to do that for you. Um, yeah. And they don't do some of the other things like interactive metrodome and some of the other um, things that can help you that you have to go and spend money on the outside world to, to get done by doctors who are working far outside of the norms of typical Western medicine. It's a widespread problem with a lot of the Western world is there's all, all these modalities out there. It's like a person who doesn't want to pay for a, a meter when they go park on a street. And instead of just paying the meter up front and actually not getting a ticket, we're getting a ticket. And now we have this huge bill that we have to pay rather than just pay the ticket up front. And, and I feel that that's the way medicine's being treated in a lot of ways is rather than maybe it's a little more expensive to go and get a whole blood panel done with all these hormone and all these biomarkers that they're checking. But what if we do that up front and mitigate having to put somebody on disability and, and, and pharmaceutical drugs the rest of their life? <laughs> and at yeah. the end of the day, you're going to save a lot of money. And not only you're going to save money, but you're going to have a productive member of society back thriving in life again. And, and, and this is such a bigger issue than just the, the military. Well, this is something that's affecting everybody. The neuroinflammation of just the chronic stress of life can cause a lot of this stuff to happen to people. And when it's treated properly, and we're maybe more extreme cases, some of the things we've been through and survived, but the fact that people like us and like these special forces operators that get blown up and, and all the things that they go through and all the things that you've gone through um, working in the elite community that you did, uh, if we can get better and we can get back to thriving at life, I think this is a beacon of hope for so many people out there. And I want to get the word out. And I really appreciate podcasts like yourself and, and giving people access to this kind of information that, you know, is so crucial to moving forward in the world is, is just being able to talk about things like this openly. Yeah. And I appreciate how authentic and vulnerable you've been throughout this entire interview. Um, and I have two more questions for you. Sure. Uh, the first, first would be, 
What are the best outcomes from this chapter of your life that you never guessed or expected would have occurred? After everything that I've been through and survived, I'm coming out with a new life perspective. While I would never want somebody to go through what I had to go through and survive, it's given me a very unique perspective and a very unique voice in the world. It's given me a lot of hope to kind of have my soul recharged the way it has been, reconnect with my spirituality or whatever you want to call that, God or, or whatever the miracle is that I've felt and I know is real that has gotten me where I'm at. I, I would have never expected that reconnection with some sort of higher power or this interconnected of all of us. And now that I've felt that and, and felt this interconnected spirituality or God or whatever you want to call it, I don't know what it is. I'm just a dog looking at the moon here and this stuff, but that's been something unexpected. I never expected to be reconnected in a way that I am and embraced on this level that I have been. It sounds like you feel like you've been given another opportunity at life. And now going through some of these new protocols, it's freeing up your mind to a point where you're starting to feel normal again, if I had to put it in my own words. That's exactly right. And just incredibly grateful to have the ability to share this with people and share what I've been through because I know there's a lot of other people that they have been going through similar things and worse in some cases without the support that I've had. Um, and I hope this can bring some people hope and maybe give them a new way forward in life. Your wife seems like she is a trooper as well and probably deserves uh, some recognition. My wife, Kara, my family, I'm lucky I've been surrounded by incredible friends and family that have gotten me through this because I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. You know, my wife is She's been through trauma with this and the situations she's been put in are pretty terrible that the treatment that some of the spouses get trying to deal with all of this. And, and a lot of the programs out there that are supposed to give them support. I know the VA has a caregiver program that's supposed to help spouses like my own uh, that are dealing with the injured veteran going through times of mental and physical dysfunction. And, and sadly, a lot of these programs are they look good on the surface, but when you actually try to apply to them and, and, and use them there, almost nobody can get the, uh, can get them. Uh, and so my wife is, she had to quit her job. She had to move around. She had to deal with me and all the struggles I was facing. And unfortunately has had very little support, uh, in that world, uh, I'm so grateful that she's still here by my side and, and, and loves me. That, and so, I'm, yeah, she's incredible. I'll end on uh, this question. How do you recognize it? Do you go back and have an anniversary of that event in any way? Yeah. Or There's an old tradition that was started by World War II pilots. And these World War II pilots, if they survived like a crash that should have killed them, they got shot down or captured and they somehow escaped. Whenever they got back to their friends and got to sit down and have a beer and celebrate, they would have a, every year on that day that they almost died, they would have a rebirth party. So now I get two birthdays. I have my actual birthday and then I have my rebirth party uh, every 
January 15th every year now uh, is a big celebration. That's a celebration of life and being here uh, kind of started by those old world war two guys, uh, old world war two pilots, but that's kind of how it is. It's, it's a celebration of life and uh, yeah, it's a good time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad we're ending on that question. And Keegan, thank you so much for joining us today. And if someone in the audience wanted to reach out to you or wants to learn more about you, how can they do so? I actually just started an Instagram account. You can find me at Kagan Smurf Gill on Instagram. Uh, That's probably the best way to get in contact with me. I'm happy to answer genuine questions from people wanting to learn more, going through their own struggles. Yeah, uh, please get in touch with me or follow me on there if you'd like to learn more about my journey and my way forward uh, and the things that I'm experienced that are helping me and maybe could help you. Keegan, thanks again for joining and it's uh, been awesome to see you again. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me on. Well, I have done a lot of interviews on the show, but that had to be one of the most intense ones I've ever done. And so thankful for Keegan being so authentic and sharing his relatable story that so many people can benefit from. And during today's interview, we discussed some previous interviews that I had on with Dr. Michael Lewis, who is a doctor who treats both Keegan and I, Andrew Marr, who runs the Warrior Angels Foundation, and also Dr. Scott Scher. Please go check out all those episodes if you haven't had a chance to listen to them before. And if you're new to the show or you would just like to introduce this to friends or family members, we now have episode starter packs, which are collections of your favorite episodes that we organized by topic to give any new listener a great way to get acquainted to everything that we do here on the show. Either go to Spotify or passionstruck.com slash starter packs to get started. And I so appreciate all the support that you are giving this global movement, keeping our momentum going forward and helping us so much to reach people all over the world who need to hear this inspiration. I couldn't do it without you, the audience, and we appreciate you so much. Now, Go out there yourself and live life passion struck. Thank you so much for joining us. The purpose of our show is to make passion go viral. And we do that by sharing with you the knowledge and skills that you need to unlock your hidden potential. If you want to hear more, please subscribe to the Passion Struck podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts at. And if you absolutely love this episode, We'd appreciate a five-star rating on iTunes and you sharing it with three of your most growth-minded friends so they can post it as well to their social accounts and help us grow our Passion Struck community. If you'd like to learn more about the show and our mission, you can go to passionstruck.com where you can sign up for our, our newsletter, look at our tools, and also download the show notes for today's episode. Additionally, you can listen to us every Tuesday and Friday for even more inspiring content. And remember, make a choice, work hard, and step into your sharp edges. Thank you again for joining us. 